Welcome to Stories from Home, Living the Just Transition, a podcast series by the Climate Justice Alliance that takes us behind the scenes in local communities building sustainable and equitable climate justice solutions in their own backyards. Climate Justice Alliance is a growing member alliance of 70 urban and rural frontline communities, organizations, and supporting networks in the climate justice movement. In Stories from Home, Living the Just Transition, we'll hear from the organizations, creators, and communities spotlighted in Story Snapshots, a new CJA project that draws from local arts, creativity, and culture to express the vision, heart, and day-to-day work of communities building just transitions across the Alliance. I'm Keenan Rhodes with CJA and the Kepper Institute in Indianapolis, and I'll be your host. Hey everyone, and welcome to Stories from Home, Living the Just Transition. I'm Keenan, your host. Today, we're bringing you a round table of climate justice leaders to speak on placing this pandemic in human experience. What's happening, what current feelings and anxieties are present, what has fundamentally changed about society so far, and what we are shaping for the future and for a just transition. And do you remember Jessica from the first episode? She's back today as we discuss the impacts of COVID-19 on the front lines. Hey, everybody. We spoke with leaders from five members of the Climate Justice Alliance, Co-op Jackson, Indigenous Environmental Network, Asian Pacific Environmental Network, East Michigan Environmental Action Council, and Urban Till. It's over a Zoom call, as many of you probably have been on these days, so you may hear some variations in audio reflecting the various environments we are all a part of. Joshua Dedman is the National Outreach Coordinator at Co-op Jackson and the Youth and Young Worker Organizer for Labor Network for Sustainability. Doria Robinson is the Executive Director of Urban Tilth. Daryl Jordan is the Senior Organizer at East Michigan Environmental Action Council, also known as EMIAC. Piper Carter is the Events Coordinator and Organizer, and Akila Amani Amatula Mizan is a Youth Organizer with EMIAC. Alvina Wong is the Campaign and Organizing Director with the Asian Pacific Environmental Network, also known as APEN. And Tom B.K. Goldtooth is the Executive Director of the Indigenous Environmental Network, also known as IEN. For more information on their work and organizations, check out the links in the podcast description. Let's get right to it. Thank you so much for joining us today to talk about climate justice, just transition, and your just recovery work in the face of this global COVID-19 pandemic. All right. So first question, how do you see your community responding to this present moment? Where and how do you see folks showing up for each other? And where and how do you see needs not being met? And we'll start with Doria from Urban Tilth. Doria actually started off with a bit of a rough connection. So I'll just summarize for you what we spoke about. Urban Tilth is based in Richmond, California, and so she has seen a lot of nonprofits and other folks, city government, rise to the occasion in terms of sharing information. She says it's an avalanche of emails and webinars and phone calls trying to get information out to folks and with people offering to get groceries for their seniors and for people who can't safely go out. And I'll let her take it from here. You know, Urban Tilth has been deemed a essential service, and we're actually ramped up our production and we've been bringing food to more families like 200 families a week boxes of fresh vegetables and building out the farm and and whatnot i think that that's like a real heartening thing for us because <laughs> we feel like we anticipated a moment like this and we prepared for it and we have something to offer and we feel really good about that but i am worried about areas where i feel like there's been gaps in response, especially with our um, folks who are undocumented in the community. I've heard people be concerned, but not like clear plans on how to get relief to people, especially people who are sick and they don't really know where they should go or if they should go to get help. I mean, if they'll be covered or or whatnot, that is a serious concern that they're not going to be covered in a lot of this relief package stuff. But I think the other thing that's been on my mind is that, you know, we're out a lot because we're working at the farm and delivering food. But what I've been seeing is a lot of our POC folks, black folks, especially out acting like it's not nothing happening, (laughs) like kind of doubting that there is a real thing to be concerned about. 
you know, not really taking any precautions. And that seriously worries me. I've gotten into a bunch of conversations like, boy, what are you doing out of here? <laughs> like, like, and, in the, you know, and, and they're like, oh, this is all fake. <laughs> you know? So that is seriously concerning. And I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Tom from IEN. Okay. When I talk about, you know, what, what's happening in our communities, I'm talking about many of the American Indian and Alaska Native communities that we know of in our indigenous environmental network. Uh, you know, we have many frontline communities, grassroots, and those are tribal members who have organized around many of these different environmental justice, economic justice issues throughout the 30 years of our existence. And so it's a multi-generational constituency. Many people don't know, though, that in all of our tribal communities, we got tribal governments, no different than maybe state citizens uh, working and uh, resisting, organizing as state citizens, and you got state governments. We have tribal governments, okay? So um, I'm just really surprised uh, of how our communities have been really strong and networking. Many of them are on Facebook and social media. The youth are really stepping up and, uh, and taking care of the elderly. I hear that report in many of our, our, our communities, not only here in Minnesota, South Dakota, North Dakota. A lot of people are familiar with uh, the DAPO, Dakota Access Pipeline issue. A lot of those folks there, they're really stepping up. Some of our tribes are very concerned, and, and I'm concerned with our, our people here in Minnesota, that if there's any outbreak within one of our communities, it can devastate a whole community. And uh, our people are, are organizing around that issue. And, uh, you know, past couple weeks, uh, we've networked with uh, some of the national intertribal organizations around getting the Congressional Native American Caucus on top of this. Uh, I, I was really inspired on the, the people coming together, really putting, putting uh, a demand because we have a, we have a relationship with the U.S. government. As, as many of the listeners may know, you know, this government has violated every treaty agreement with the First Nations, the, the American Indians and Alaska Natives. What is bottom line? They want our resources. They want our resources all the time. That's bottom line. So why is it that many of uh, the Indian healthcare clinics and hospitals that operate on our 574 uh, American Indian and Alaska Native reservations, our communities, they're inadequate. They're not equipped to address this uh, this uh, pandemic issue, and that's that's really sad. Uh, it's, it's overall that's a fair, uh, that's an unfair and terrible, unethical situation in our communities. That healthcare is 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 really terrible. Poverty in many of our communities is a big issue. So you know this issue as it came about uh, took me back to the spring of two thousand nine with the swine flu the uh, influenza A that was pandemic at that time. And that's when we found that these viruses disproportionately hit our communities with poor uh, healthcare provision. When you look at the CDC guidelines, the Center for Disease Control, they ask people to take extra precautions with those who are autoimmune deficient and people who are dealing with chronic diseases. When we look at our indigenous population, no matter what state, New York State, uh, North Carolina, Florida, uh, Oklahoma, Alaska, California, Arizona, New Mexico, Nevada, we can go down the line. That criteria is majority of the patient, our native patients in the healthcare system. Diabetes, weakened immune systems, hypertension, heart disease, so, you know, we're, we're on that front line. 
with no no healthcare provisions in rural areas. There's no test kits. So that's kind of like the situation I wanted to talk about, but also how our people, our youth, our women's societies, our elders, our, our veterans as well, they're, they're all like saying, hey, this is messed up, yes. And we'll continue to uh, make demands on, on Trump and the administration. Uh, to appropriate the amount of money that we need in Indian country. The United States has a treaty relationship with us. We're not just mere stakeholders. Uh, it's sovereign government to government. And so, you know, there, there's demands that we are making that uh, our tribes get the appropriations they need to, to handle this crisis. But we're not waiting. I, uh, right here in, in northern Minnesota, we have youth groups who are organizing food drives, even finding toilet paper, you know, because the stores up here in northern Minnesota, uh, they're out of toilet paper, even here. Thank you very much for sharing. Joshua from Coal Jackson. Sure. Um, I'm grateful for Tom and both Dory's points, mostly um Understanding the severity of who's not getting, who's not accessible, and how much information is not being shared, and for others whose material conditions and things have been so terrible that they just don't think that any of this is based in reality. So, in that, we've seen a variety of community responses. You know, like back to Doria's points, there are folks in Mississippi who are barbecuing, enjoying life as if they have extended a vacation not thinking about like, oh, there's some severe illness that is being spread. and But the numbers are rising in Mississippi, so the reality is becoming more true. Also, in that reality, there is like a lot of mutual aid that's been trying to be set up with various groups, not just only within Cooperation Jackson, but the People's Movement Assemblies and other spaces. And then uh, a quick definition of mutual aid is essentially where groups get an opportunity and people get an opportunity to start to share, express, and expand resources amongst each other to give assistance and help in times of crisis, but not just in times of crisis. Um, I think that there's a larger definition to mutual aid that we can give in a later conversation, but definitely want to say that like this is a moment where we are critically defining a level of mutual aid across the city of Jackson. Um, there has been the city of Jackson's response but that has been the backdrop of a very racist and a very white supremacist, xenophobic state government that is, you know, trying to ignore and give some erasure to, to the thought that this is something that is striking our people in a very severe way. And so, um, yeah, and, you know, folks are showing up for folks, you know, building networks amongst each other. Like in my family, we designated which houses for food, food storage, water distribution, um, general leisure, and things like that. So um, there's a variety of things being set up. Akila from EMIAC. Hey, guys. What's up? I've really been noticing just a lot of, I wouldn't want to say distress, but it has been a little distressed and a lot of people preparing for, you know, just staying in the house. So, of course, everything at the grocery stores are gone, just about. But I also have been noticing that the community has been looking out for each other by donating anything that they feel they don't need, like water, hand sanitizer, and even masks. There's a lady that has a place called CDK Creations, and she actually created her own mask and put logos and a lot of different things on it. It's pretty sweet. The needs that I feel aren't being met, considering the fact that there are people who don't have homes to quarantine in, you know, I'm kind of worried about them and where they're going to quarantine. And just considering the fact that all the jobs are just about, no one has to work except for if you work at the grocery store or they just closed down the plant. So even then, but people aren't still getting paid. So how are they going to, you know, pay for food or pay for more water or anything like that? That's one thing that concerns me the most. All right. And Alvina from APEN. Yeah, I think I just want to appreciate all the different stories that are being uplifted from all our different communities in this moment. And APEN working in Oakland and Richmond with immigrant and refugee Asian low-income communities, I think we're 
working with communities that have been exposed to this uh, long-term pollution that just puts them at that predisposition of being exposed to the virus and actually contracting it in a really dangerous way. And so I think that there's that heightened sense of anxiety and anger that makes a lot of sense. And I think in that, you know, people are looking for um, who to blame. (laughs) And also in this moment, just this uh, heightened anxiety of like, how do I get by? You know, and so, so many responses, I think in the first few days were just around like, we got to figure out how we don't get kicked out of our house because we can't pay rent because we are losing jobs or our hours are getting reduced. And then you think about like paying rent to a landlord who's going to pay that money to the bank. And these banks are the ones that continue to fund military to like police our communities and also wreck our homelands and also continue to fund and invest these big corporations and polluters that are not following EPA rules. And it's frustrating. And I think what is really hopeful in this moment is that our communities are able to kind of see past all of that noise and trash and really think and focus back on like people. Like we're the ones in our communities that matter the most and need to be taken care of in this moment. And also like in those ways that we know how to take care of our communities, if we were living in that way before all this pandemic, you know, I think there are a lot of things that could have been prevented. I think in other ways that we see our communities responding in emergency ordinances or shelters in place or all these things, is really just trying to center it again on like, the human impacts and not trying to like increase criminalization or increase militarization or increase violence. And I think that just has to be really clear when there's all this noise and all this information. And I think people are talking about, you know, there's a lot of information going out and there's also a lot of rumors and a lot of lies that are going out and um, making sure that all our communities are getting information in the languages that they speak and not hyper focused on like just translating things because there's still a lot of our communities that don't necessarily read their own languages right like so many of our languages are verbal or based on intonations and such and so how do we make sure that the information gets out there accurately and then I think just to name the concerns around unsheltered communities right now and how uh, high risk they are at exposure and at the fact that there's a huge increase of seniors being unhoused in this moment and it's just scary. But, you know, I think there's a lot of beautiful ways that our communities are coming together, sharing in mutual aid and really kind of like what Joshua was saying is like not focused on it in a sense of charity or I'm doing something good right now, but actually we have a huge wide network of folks that really believe in redistribution and equal equitable distribution of our resources. And this is a time that we're practicing it right now. And having folks that are centered on the front lines that have been doing this work from the disability justice movement, from all these different places that are enacting these new systems and structures so that they actually work for us on a larger scale. All right. I want to first give y'all opportunity to respond to each other, ask any questions. And then if you don't come up with any, uh, or if you don't have anything, I got plenty. (laughs) So um, anyone want to respond to what the other is doing or what someone said? I actually would like to respond to Tom. And I want to say thank you for acknowledging the youth because a lot of people, they just kind of downplay us when it comes to some stuff. Uh, This year I've noticed a lot of people just taking... What is a good word? Considering the fact that we do exist and that we do have a voice. So I want to say thank you just for the acknowledgement. Yes, let's celebrate the youth. There's a few things I wanted to engage in with Gloria, particularly, and and I'm sure that we see this because all of us are, are oppressed people and we're developing strategies and, you know, taking revolutionary postures to end oppression. I hope, I'm certain that's what all of us gathered on this call have come for. But it's the struggle and, you know, letting folks see that the oppression is set in reality. And I think that that is something that we need to engage in with our people. But how do you do that and not, you know, have a purist position? You know, you're not telling people what to do. You know, 
there is that first chapter in Race Matters from Cordell West way back in the gap from that says, you know, black folks are nihilistic. But like, you know, there there is this holding of black and oppressed people's nihilism of like, well sh- shit, we <laughs> we falling out from everything anyway. So why should we be worried about COVID nineteen when you know we're already, especially in Mississippi, the state where there's high diabetes and high all of these other symptoms and diseases that you know when compounded with COVID nineteen is you know definitely killing folks. And then um, it was more so about the essential service of Urban Tilt and how did you make your farm and essential service because you know we got the farm in Cooperation Jackson and. We're in a period of ramping up food production, too, because this moment we brought in about uh, 3,000 pounds of like produce last year. But, you know, trying to make sure that we are capable of sustaining folks in periods like this. And I really appreciate that Urban Tilt is able to do that. So just try to tease all those things out. Yeah, definitely want to hear more about how you made from Doria, how you made Urban Tilth um, an essential service with your farm. And right. if you could so, go more in, a little more in depth into what do you all do? Right, right. Honestly, we didn't do anything to make ourselves an essential service. We called the county supervisor when the order came down to uh, shelter in place and asked them, you know, what did it mean? And, and they said, oh, no, no, you guys are an essential service. You guys need to get the CSA boxes out. So we already had a pre-existing relationship with the county supervisor. We actually, they're one of our pickup spots for the boxes. <laughs> so, and like their staff gets the box and a bunch of seniors pick up from there. And so they kind of knew, they already knew what we did, you know? So we, we had that pre-existing relationship. So when that happened, they were like, no, not only do we want you guys to make sure to keep going, but we're going to send you more people if you can take more members so that we have make sure that people have food, like good food through this, you know? And so, yeah, we didn't have to do anything because I felt like that was one of those things in terms of, you know, what is the work that we're doing? We're not in crisis, you know? Like making those relationships, establishing yourself, like creating these avenues for distribution that can withstand a crisis, right? So that was pretty dope. Like we just, we just kept rolling and, ex- and are expanding. And we, we literally brought all of our staff back from the programs we had to shut down. We have a whole number of community education and other programs that we had to shut down, but we just brought them all back to the three acres of the farm. And we're amazingly just building out the farm faster than we, we thought it was going to take us two years to do what we did in the last like week. <laughs> so it's kind of crazy, you know, that, you know, having land where you can plan these things and plan for, for future, you know, have a future vision, you know, having the relationships to keep you going. So um, just to be succinct, um, Urban Tillip operates seven different school and community gardens across Richmond, two of which are farms that are focused on production. We have a bunch of education outreach programs, kind of things that we've done. Those are all shut down. And we're actually using now the school gardens to produce food as well that go to our CSA. Our CSA is a subsidized CSA. So we have some members who get a box for uh, for $10. It's 10 pounds of fresh fruits and vegetables, all organic. And then some people pay more to make those $10 boxes available. People can use their EBT. We're just like a farm stand or a farmer's market. Um, and we also have a certain set of free boxes available and we do like pop-up free farm stands, things like that. So we make sure that all the food that is ready goes out to people. So um, we basically, when the, the shelter in place came down, we converted all of our pickup sites to delivery. And we have three vans going out now twice a week, delivering about 200 boxes to people just straight to their doorsteps. It's all in Richmond. So the routes are close to each other, short. And that's 200 people that don't have to go out of their house to get fresh food. That's amazing. I feel like what you all are doing and everything that everyone has said so far just really summarizes 
an aspect of climate justice for me or what I've been learning about climate justice, right? That we are already doing the work. We already see what the new world will look like because it, it is a part of basically the history of these communities, right? Like, I think a lot of people right now are struggling to find solutions and the solutions have always been kind of home right here. So I think this is such a great segue into the next part of the conversation for us. And I'm so excited to hear from everybody about this is what do you believe this moment means for climate justice and for just transition? And what can we do now to shift the terrain of struggle so that we can be more prepared or better positioned coming out of this to move forward just transition, but also to be more prepared for global emergencies, global disasters? Um, And I'd love to um, start with Joshua. There is a lot that we're holding in this moment. And I think that the first thing that the climate justice movement needs to do is as we're defining a just transition, as we're defining a Green New Deal, we have to be able to state that we don't want to return to a sense of normalcy. We don't want to return to business as usual. We don't want to return to the concessions of capital that have put profit above people and has constantly extracted from our planet extracted and exploited our people in every fashion. And we feel as this is the this is a moment that the earth is responding with us to say in concert to say that things must change. So there's a few things that I've been thinking about that we can do. On uh, yesterday um, I wear two hats. Um, I'm the young worker organizer for Labor Network for Sustainability. A brother got a penis kid. And so we entertained a conversation between both enviros and labor and trying to engage in a space where enviros can support those who are are the workers, the, the workforce of this nation, especially those who are nurses and for other frontline workers in grocery stores. Two ago, we didn't consider grocery store workers like even much valuable labor, let alone frontline workers. Now we're seeing these people in a moment of them being in the frontline. Also, uh, within Cooperation Jackson, we've done a list of things that we have prepared for, um, as we are preparing for, uh, because we believe that that the transition may get worse before it gets better. But what we're going to call for overall is a general strike. Folks ain't going to work no way. Like, let's jam up some production. Let's stop and let these capitalists who have determined this system really pay attention to us. Thanks. That was great. Alvina, I know you said that Oakland just passed um, something major that is really successful that you were excited about. Yeah, we've been working hard. Oakland now has one of the strongest um, eviction moratoriums in the whole state of California that actually looks to prevent evictions of all sorts for all tenants in any building and um, really looking to stop rent increases, late fee accruals, punishment or things based off of like utility, like not being able to pay utilities. And then really centering, like we're trying to keep people housed for this public health crisis because people do need to stay indoors. And also because no one in this moment should have to be freaking out about where they live, let alone like freaking out about how are they going to get food on the table? And so there's a lot of other pieces around making sure that like our small businesses that are also renters don't get kicked out while they're trying to maintain their businesses and maintain their essential services to our communities. There's a lot more to be said around like what is within city jurisdiction versus county jurisdiction versus state and federal. And then again, at the end of the day, a lot of it requires some appeal to kind of like the big banks to do the right thing where I guess I sit in this question of like, they should be regulated. I guess to kind of riff off of Joshua a little bit as well, you know, I think in this moment, there have been a lot of memes going around about like, hey, our environment is better because we all stopped work. And it it's centered in this way that's like blaming like overpopulation. And again, really kind of ignoring the fact that like, this is happening because our most vulnerable communities are 
at the risk of getting this infection and dying. And really, I think what I want to offer in this reframe is like, this is what the environment and our earth and planet can sustain if we actually centered on people and centered on taking care of each other instead of centered on some sort of economy that was just driven for market and production and profit. And so I think what we can learn from this moment is just that when we can get together and share and collectively like care for each other and also collectively care for our environment, our climate, that we really are funneling down to like, what is essential for us to live? Like what are the industries that we really need to have housing, to have food, to have like good clean recreation for our sanity and our mental health as well. And also just this piece around like, this is the moment where finally low wage workers are being seen as heroes, grocery store workers, right? Delivery folks, people who are like in the gig economy to make sure that people can get to their hospital appointments or whatever. Like these low wage workers have been our heroes this whole time. And finally we're in this moment of a reframe and recognizing that the services they provide is extremely undervalued, but extremely essential when we're in these moments of crisis. And again, it's not just about being in crisis to recognize this, but like we've had these systems in place and we're really thinking about like, what will the long-term be after this? Cause again, like Joshua said, it's not about going back to business as usual after this. It's about using these systems that we have now in these emergencies and showing and proving that they work and they work for the long-term for the long haul. And so after whatever state of emergency is lifted, it's like we need to keep pushing for these systems to, to work and be in place. Yeah, I think that's so true. And like you said, like recognizing and reframing a lot of these uh, concepts are not new to us. Um, I, I'll let Tom from IAN speak on that a little bit, what this moment means for climate justice and just transition. Yeah, you know, one of the things that we articulated as communities that come out of struggle, oh, that was way before uh, 2009 at the UN climate meeting in Copenhagen. And we have some of our uh, member organizations uh, that are presently part of Grassroots for Global Justice, Climate Justice Alliance, there we were in Copenhagen. And it was a complete failure, different issues that came up. Uh, and that's when I think that there was a lot of uh, assessment, critical analysis that this requires systems change, not climate change. And you've seen that terminology in different spaces. Within the next year, many of us ended up in uh, Cochabamba, Bolivia. You know, people were invited. We had a delegation from our alliances, native and non-native, and it was really strong. And that's where the, the articulation was the link of capitalism, climate capitalism, that Capitalism is the root cause of climate change. So here we're seeing the same thing. The racism, that vulnerability in communities, disease capitalism, climate capitalism. And that should not be the new, the, the, the new normal. You know, we all have that articulation within that, within inconsistencies and inequitability. Now we have this, this virus and we're trying to stop from uh, the bailout where the money that's supposed to address this uh, pandemic situation is going to go to, to bailing out the, the corporations. And that includes fossil fuel corporations. And, uh, you know, so I think that's where we've been right on in our, in our movement with our youth, our elders, our women, uh, everyone coming together and articulating this, holding our governments accountable. The link between climate issue, disease capitalism here, the health of our mother earth, neoliberalism, imperialism. I mean, it's all linked up, definitely. Thank you, Tom. And it it really does strike me that everything is, is so interconnected. The fact that government right now, I think, is there are governments that are failing at responding at the local level, definitely at the national level. And then there are governments that are 
that are succeeding. And this is a moment okay. either to reframe or to, I think, shrink into status quo, right? So we see, for example, the EPA relaxing environmental standards for one, but then we also see organizations and people adapting and being resilient and being open to the moments of innovation and creativity in the face of struggle. So I, I wonder, you know, like, what are the opportunities that we can be taking advantage of in this time? Like when we're thinking about shifting climate justice and just transition, but <laughs> I will let Doria speak on that a little bit. This whole crisis has got me thinking a lot about that we haven't really felt the full brunt of all of the climate processes that are coming our way, that we're in the beginning of this cycle and that there's a lot more to prepare for, you know, a lot more to make sure that we have things in place so that we can weather the storms that are coming. I think that the where the work that I am committed to, the work that I'm doing actively is more around that, like how, what is the world that we want to live in and what do we need to put in place so that we can k- take care of our people and take care of the earth, you know? My, my brain doesn't wrap around policy so well. I don't know what kind of hope I have in governments. And, uh, and so I think more about where are our dependencies right now, dependencies on fossil fuel economy, like as organizations, as individuals in our community, you know, where are we dependent? Where would we be vulnerable if certain things were taken away? You know, have we made a plan for power? You know, do we have an electric grid? Are our vehicles that are delivering food not fossil fuel based? Do we have enough growing spaces and enough food growing so that we can, you know, sustain? Do we have alternative ways to communicate if cell phones go down? I feel like those those things are not paranoia, especially if you think about them as just ways to be interdependent instead of dependent upon this kind of uh, top-down fossil fuel driven system. Also, just questioning the structures of our society that are based on capitalist profit-driven, ever in never-ending, increasing profits. You know, when we when we ask the question about like how do we want to live, you know, how do we really want to live and thrive, we have to question what is our ultimate goal, what is our vision of success, what is our vision of a good life, and you know, one thing I keep hearing people who can, you know, when you have a moment away from the anxiety, you know, people are like, it's nice to be with my family, you know? It's nice to not have to have this grind on you constantly, you know? And it's like, we should, we should be listening to that and thinking, what kind of work do we want? What kind of work situation do we want? And how do we change policy to support, you know, work that's, that's based on, like, like you were saying, people and, and living, so I think a lot about the kind of infrastructure that we need to put in place to be, you know, truly resilient to more of these crises coming. Like I can see the, the fire season coming. We had rain like two days, I think, three maybe, this whole winter in California. Like so fire season is coming, you know, and, and what have we done? You know, how are we dealing with water? You know, what is our relationship to water? I feel like we need to be having these serious conversations. And then kind of to end on it and to wrap back to questions that were brought up, like we really need to take the next moment where there's less anxiety and stress and get into some serious conversations around political education and, you know, encouraging folks to read and to analyze information and to question things and to be able to make decisions not based on mass media memes and tiktok (laughs) there's some serious work that Mm. needs to be done in our movement in that realm that's yes that's that's so real i think information literacy is is a serious issue in the u.s and i think you know having moments like these where i can get together so many experts on the topic matter i'm hoping that this will contribute to providing information out there for folks Um, Piper, did you want to also uh, speak on this question of what do you believe this moment means for climate justice and just transition? Um, I know that just before this, we were discussing how y'all are doing water runs for folks and there are people whose water is still shut off after three years. 
So I think there's a really interesting connection between faulty infrastructure and the ways that people have always stepped in to fill the gaps. Yeah, I think if we're talking about a shift and we're talking about, you know, the future, I mean, the CO2 levels are down like 25% in China, you know? And, you know, China produces like 30% of the world's like CO2 levels, right? I'm saying that to say that like, as we're looking, you know, this is where we're looking at, at the global trends, right? Because we're not just in our place where we live, even though it feels like it because we're quarantined, but we're all like connected. We look in Italy, right? The, I don't know if y'all saw on Instagram, all the pictures of like all the animals and all the, all the birds and all the fish that were coming out on the, in Venice because people aren't doing all of this pollution. And so when we're talking about shifts, as we can see the actions of people that are shifting within this crisis, we're also beginning to see that the negative impact that people have had and capitalism have had on this planet. And um, Tom spoke about the disease capitalism and the disaster capitalism. And because we're now not driving all over the place and not in these factories producing all of these things and not running around trying to consume, 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 and not putting such an impact on our planet, I think it's a good time to think about keeping that as a more permanent sort of way of being. It's how are we putting less of this impact, you know? I mean, evictions have halted in, indefinitely in New York City, at least. Um, Folks who were in prisons, right, who were not considered a threat um, to society were released in Ohio, right? And, and it's about time, right? I mean, even, like, major cities across the globe are, like, reporting uh, blue skies, right? For, like, the first time that folks are not seeing this, this thick, you know, smog and things like that. Folks who had been fighting against what they're calling socialism are finally uh, able to understand the importance of universal health care. And I think that the fact that that has been lifted up to the top is, is very important. And for us to keep in conversation, you know, we have all these different infrastructure and, and, and institutions that just overnight, <laughs> because they had to close down, had to rethink, you know, lots of things. How about that uh, the U.S. is actually working uh, as a part of the stimulus to give folks like you know, over a thousand dollars, even though it's some, it's a, you know, terrible, but just the idea, right? Folks thought that, uh, Yang was cuckoo for this idea and haha, now here they are discussing his, the very same idea, right? I mean, kindness, creativity, human connection, all these things are valuable, right? Like once again. That's true. I've been seeing, so I'm part of the dance community and on Facebook, so many DJs are going live and just right? performing all the time. Without them, how would we be? I think, you know, artists are such an integral part of the human experience, right? We And experiencing pleasure and shifting culture. And what I'm hearing from you, Piper, and what I'm hearing from a lot of the other panelists also is that, you know, that we had these visions of what the future looks like things are currently being put into place very quickly in motion so that people can experience everything that wasn't premonitioned, but was already kind of desired, right, by, by people. Right. So now all of a sudden it's tangible, it's manifestable, it's, it's getting real. What's, what are the next items, like the next steps, the other things that we want to make real in this moment of time while we can? Um, Alvina, I know you mentioned in the chat energy democracy and utilities. Did you want to speak on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think that, like you were saying, we've been dreaming and wanting for, like, independence from big corporations on utilities and energy, right? So anything from electricity, how we, like, can stay connected during this time and use internet, even, like, our water and all these pieces that are mostly like private owned investor owned companies and what we know to be true is like in these moments where we have to kind of stay in place or whatever it is if we were able to have distributed production right 
small scale, community owned, community governed energy systems that can continue to provide these kind of essential and critical resources to our homes without having to like be afraid that like, oh no, the big corporation and investors are going to decide to shut it down for a few days or a few weeks because people aren't paying their bills enough or whatever. You know, like we have that capacity and have been wanting to build pieces like that now. And so these are both moments of opportunity where it's like, okay, we've had the vision, we've had this plan. You were telling us that it wouldn't work or people wouldn't want to buy into it. But now it's like, we're in this moment of crisis and it's like, let's put it in place. Let's test it out. Let's prove that it actually works. And then once that is true, that should just be our new normal, right? Energy democracy, small scale distribution of energy, like community owned water and utilities, like that can be our new experience. That can be our new normal. And that's really where we want to shift into. And I know that there's a lot of other projects happening nationally trying to do the same thing too. So if other folks want to speak to what you all have been experimenting with, that would be exciting to hear. Uh, Yeah, uh, thank you for that. And I definitely want other panelists to get a chance to respond. But I also want to hear from Doria about this because I think I I was on a a webinar yesterday by the Highlander Center about mutual aid. And they made the point that a lot of the things, the natural organic mutual aid networks, the things that communities are doing to be a community, basically, to support each other, are often co-opted by the state or reappropriated by the state or somehow implemented by the state afterwards. And that they whitewash the history and the legacy of how that came to be and also increase the barriers to access for folks when you make something a part of the state, right? So like, what is the balance there between having our institutions and, and, and trying to fight for policies to work for us, but also to do the work and and continue to figure out how to do that work ourselves and build it organically. I'm like one of those folks that are just, I just don't have a lot of faith in, in the longevity of policy. I feel like it, political systems are really vulnerable to the whim of politics, you know, electoral terms. You win for four years, you lose for eight, you win for 12, you lose for five. And, you know, policies swings back and forth. I feel like the field that I feel more more confident in giving my life to is the field of culture and people, like investing in cultural change, investing in people, investing, you know, my life energy in preserving the land and being in right relationship with the land. I feel like instilling values, those kind of values and the people who are around me, changing the culture around it so it's not you know, perceived to be owned by one group of people, (laughs) you know, or owned in at all is really where the work that I want to do is I feel like it can, it can live beyond an electoral cycle and uh, can be passed down from person to person. Um, It can weather that longer, bigger storm. So I, I just feel like it's really important when I hear Alvina talk about what we could be doing in terms of, you know, setting up community solar or, you know, having these kind of community governed systems. That's the other thing, not just like systems that are serving community members, but also just governed by community. So we can determine how it interacts with land and water and, and air, you know, we can be cognizant and take responsibility for the way that we want to make an impact governance is really super, super important. So I see hope in what Alvina is talking about, like what Cooperation Jackson is doing, like, and honestly, what the indigenous populations, indigenous people, IEN have been doing for, you know, for time immemorial, right? Like forever. Like I'm looking to them for guidance and not necessarily governmental systems. I mean, policies are good, especially when you want people not to be evicted. And I really champion people who can fight on that battlefield um, and really appreciate their efforts. But I I feel like my particular work is in a different realm. Tom, did you want to respond? Yeah. I mean, I I love this, uh, this discussion. I think that we have to really, as communities in struggle, and and I see we're doing this, uh, but also it, where we're at right now really demands that we really do more critical analysis on, on where we're at 
what's this moment in time not not for the master's house definitely that the colonizers mindset no where are we at as community how do we interact uh, with each other questions like how do we reclaim our future and uh, what does that really mean for for our indigenous peoples i mean yeah we have to always almost like a daily struggle address the issues of decolonization how do we decolonize ourselves from the mindset of a predator a predator policy a predator system of capitalism so what does that mean when we want to build sustainable communities and strengthen and nurture that support base that I, I hear people are talking about as community-based, especially when we have to look at how the system, the matrix has wanted to disempower us, take our identity away from us and who we are so that our people don't have a deep, spiritual profound relationship with this concept of mother earth and many of the people i work with the history comes from the land from africa the history with the land is critical southeast asia indonesia pacific islanders is land even some of the the immigrants that came from europe understood this so understanding this concept is very important and then so then when we embrace just transition as ien indigenous environmental network taking that direction from our elders and now i'm an elder okay it's, um is you know what is that spiritual relationship to mother earth that concept of mother earth and it's interesting that a lot of um People within a, an industrialized nation, including our own people, don't know what that relationship is and struggle with that. How do we build resilient local economies based upon that relationship and respect for Mother Earth? I think that's where I'm seeing some critical thinking emerging because it does address ownership of energy, ownership of our seeds to plant, ownership even, I'm sure, the industry fossil fuel because the carbon footprint has gone down now because of this uh, pandemic they're going to try to offset and make money through carbon offsets that's the mentality yeah that's happening thank you and first thank you all for sharing basically conversations like this and conversations where community is reclaiming its future asking itself that and also as an active practice has been very rejuvenating for me even seeing artists give their art directly to people to rejuvenate the human spirit so it's not just a commodity which is how it's treated in in the economic system that we all still live in and wanted to ask everyone else closing thoughts one minute per person please <laughs> where if anywhere um, are you finding solace beauty or hope and we'll start with alvina i feel like like I was saying a little earlier, it's like when you get to step outside, if you get to step outside and you get to see that things are still growing, you know, seeds are still taking root in these moments that we're feeling so frantic and disconnected or and anxious. It is a little bit of hope of like there's still chances for us to grow and build and create something even better, even stronger. I think other places that give me hope and just in that last conversation around like really remembering where do we come from so that we know where we want to go and re recognizing like all the leadership and smarts and creative solutions and creativity that our communities have and have weathered through already can teach us where we need to go next and how we need to do differently and, and be differently. And so I think in these moments of mutual aid and people really stepping up and saying like, hey, I want to do something different than my everyday kind of normal so that I make sure that the person next to me and my neighbors are being taken care of is really hopeful in this moment and really inspiring. Yeah, huge shout out to and just major props and respect to everyone doing this work. You know, and there's a lot of people that I've seen, even in my own, in my own neighborhood within Kepra and also just even in my family, young people that I don't like even see or hear from, like, 
coming out of the woodworks to make sure that everybody's taken care of. Brother Daryl, would you like to go next and conclude uh, thoughts where, if anywhere, you find a solace, beauty, or hope? It's a hard question for Detroit because we're in a war here, and if folks didn't believe it, they find it out now. While, while the virus might not have been imposed on us, the city and them are using that shit to push us out the city, just like they did in uh, New Orleans and Katrina. There are still black folks that can't go back to Katrina, and there's going to be black folks that get pushed out of Detroit that will never be able to come back here and live again. And uh, the reason they're doing it is because we got thousands of people who don't have no water on here because there's been a political battle around water for years. Uh, it started in 1975. I know a lot of y'all think the waterworks started three or four years ago. But since 1975, the Detroit People's Water Board has been fighting to maintain our water system. Because as soon as we had a black mayor come to power and black people take over the city, white people got scared and decided that they needed to do something about the water. So we've been in a war for uh, since 74 about goddamn water. And now we got big parts of our most vulnerable communities that are at stake right now because we got a mayor that said, God damn it, if they wanted water, they should have paid their bill and not their cable. I mean, you know, that's the attitude here. And so the only I'm fighting solace and that I don't carry a gun and I ain't shot no motherfuckers in the last week. Hey, I appreciate your energy, brother. Appreciate it. Tom from IEN, concluding thoughts. Um, there's a word that we have in our, our Sioux language, Dakota, Lakota, Nakota language, and it's Medakie Awasi. It means we're all related. And I, I really like, I'm inspired when I hear stories of people slowing down and seeing the birds, seeing nature. I think that's not only healing. But that's part of the prophecy is that the world is going to come to a place to where it's going to wake up. Is the far right going to do that? I don't know. But we're going to do it in the streets, waking up. And that's the strength that I see that's coming out of this. Is a, It's a strong message. And we're all related. That's what we're finding. Thank you. I appreciate those words. You know, and... Now more than ever, people are thinking about the interconnectivity of all things, or at least I hope that. And hopefully we can continue to build upon that collective strength to push change forward. Turn it over to Joshua from Co-op Jackson. I'm excited to have had this interaction, this exchange with, with each of you. I know I'm on a call with quite a few of you all the time. You're on a lot of calls together. And um, yeah, quite like Piper and I um, go back like she sits in the rising majority. But what really provides um, me joy are these interactions. It gives me a sense of no matter what happens next, because we can't predict it, you know, our opposition is strong. Our opposition is the wealthy. And so we have a lot to consider. But, you know, as we're, you know, blending it together, I know that there is hope for tomorrow and, um, as Alvina said, um, the grass is still growing, seeds are still taking root. So, and I get to see my daughter every day. So, and yeah, I got a bottle, so I'm about to turn up. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, Doria from Urban Tilth. We were talking yesterday um, out on the farm, and we were just saying everyone at UT was just saying how we feel just kind of honored and grateful to be able to grow food for people, to sustain people, to help to, you know, do it in a way that doesn't hurt the earth, you know, but actually puts us in closer relationship to it. And we're actually sustaining people's bodies, hopefully helping to build their immune systems. And just that has been really life affirming. It helps get through this kind of dark, these dark days to knowing that we have this opportunity to do this work. I just feel, you know, so extremely grateful for everything that's made that possible. Thank you so much, everybody, for joining us today and for sharing your wisdom with all the listeners um, of CJA's podcast, Stories from Home, Living the Just Transition. To our listeners, please check out the links in the episode description to learn more about these climate justice leaders, about Just Transition itself, and the important work that's happening in the time of COVID-19. If you have any questions, feedback, or you just want to say hello to us in response to this episode, feel free to shoot us an email at media at climatejustice.org. And I think that's a wrap. 
If you like what you hear, please share this episode. Donate at climatejusticealliance.org and sign up for our newsletter for updates. Also, let us know what you think of the podcast. You can find all our contact information, including social media, at climatejusticealliance.org. Story Snapshots is a project by the Climate Justice Alliance. From local to international, from prairies to mountains to island shores, from youth to elders, we work together toward a shared vision for the future. Stories from Home, Living the Just Transition is produced by Jessica Zhao, Keenan Rhodes, Olivia Burlingame, and Samantha Harvey. Our sound editing team includes Elijah Pogues, Jennifer Wager, and Callie Wright. The music is One Fine Day by The Insider and Stuff Will Never Love You Back by Dr. Turtle.